You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Lucy Kellison. And I'm Ruth Flegman. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Later in the program, we have Disabulletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half an hour, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. But first, your local headlines. During the February 20th meeting of the Community Justice Response Committee, ACLU of Indiana Director Ken Folk urged the need for a new jail to the community. Look, you need a new jail. Um, Everyone knows that. Uh, Back in 2008, when I filed the lawsuit, everyone knew that. The jail then was grossly overcrowded. It is not now, thanks to the work of the judges and everyone else in the system. But it is, as the report that you guys commissioned, that was just referred to, it is the report noted is evident that the, that the Monroe County Jail has exceeded its structural and functional life cycle. Um, it is, if you contrast the jail, mm-hmm. and I did watch the presentation that the sheriff's office put on at your meeting in January, and I saw the pictures, but forget the pictures, forget everything. Just look at architecture. I, I'm a lawyer. I've been involved, I, I was just writing them down, at least 10 cases involving county jails. I, I'm not an architect, but I can tell you what happened between the time this jail was built, and I think this jail was in bad shape the minute it was built because of being on top of the courthouse, but the time this jail was built and jails now, and those of you who've gone to other jails have undoubtedly seen this, jails are now being built in a system where you have basically pods. You will have everything on one floor, You will have a central control area. You will have radiating out like slices of the pie living quarters. That gives the ability of the staff in that control area or even in the the units themselves to have eye-to-eye contact on prisoners. The problems with old jails, even jails that are not silly, which I think putting a jail on top of an existing building was silly. The problem is they were linear. And when you have a linear jail, you can't see what you can't see. And even if there is adequate cameras around, and historically Monroe County has had problems with that because of of the age, every prisoner will tell you if you ask them, and they're honest with you, within two minutes where the spots are where there's no camera. That's where people go to fight. That's where people go to do things. And Unless you have a human being in every cell, which obviously you don't, you're going to have problems. And it's a dangerous, dangerous situation. Folk explained a lawsuit the ACLU filed in 2008 against the county. We had the case in 2008. It was, it's a class action, meaning that I represent all the prisoners in the jail then and now. Um, we employed Ed Cohn to be our expert. Ed was a great guy. He was the former commissioner of the DOC. Not exactly a big ACLU guy, but a straight shooter. 
he went through the jail. I'll always remember this. Uh, and at one point, Ed was taller than I am. Um, he just reached up and grabbed stuff off the ceiling. He ripped, he ripped, ins- well, he touched insulation on the pipes. You can't have that in a jail. You can't have wires exposed. You can't have dripping water. You can't have that. And what Ed said in his report to the court or to me was that um, construction of a new jail is necessary. So we filed this private settlement agreement in 2009, and, and it's called a private settlement agreement because it's not a court order. It's not confidential. And it required a population cap and required notice to be given when we approached the cap. And to this day, I receive daily population reports. And as I said, the population's down. But the expectation of everyone back in 2009 was there would be a new jail. So we agreed that the private settlement agreement would expire in 2011, subject to being re-upped. And every year, we've re-upped it so that now it's set to expire January 15th of 2024. The idea being that at least having it there will keep a lid on. But When I get involved in jail cases, and and I've represented thousands of prisoners, I've represented cases involving mentally ill prisoners, I'm very sensitive to issues concerning prisoners. By the time I get involved, everyone knows what the right answer is, Um, and which is usually why we steer to an agreement. Um, At the current time, because of lawsuits we filed, there are new jails being built in Vigo, in Henry, in Gibson, in Wabash and Ford Willing and Allen. They've had a, we've had a little issue getting things done there. I'm not a big fan of locking people up. I'm the ACLU, remember? Uh, but I recognize that people will be locked up. And if they are locked up, especially since they're pretrial, therefore the presumption of innocence, they should be placed in constitutional settings. Monroe County Council member Jennifer Crosley expressed frustration at the lack of effort done by leadership when the lawsuit was filed. I know you just mentioned that it kept getting extended year after year. Yep. And I guess my question is how, I'm, you know, it's, it's frustrating that folks that were empowered during that time didn't do what was necessary. And now all of a sudden we're here. Um, but maybe everything happens for a reason. So that's why we're here. Um, but I guess I was just curious to see like why it got extended. And then the other part to that is I've heard from various sources, but since you are the expert and you are sitting here in front of us, um, there's lots of rumor mills of what will happen if this expires next year and we've not done anything. I guess, can you talk to those points? Folk noted that the lawsuit was considered, quote, private settlement agreement, end quote, meaning that it's not subject to judicial enforcement. There's something called the Prison Litigation Reform Act. Back in 1996, Congress passed a law to try and stop prison litigation. And what Congress said, basically, is that we're, you, when in the old days, if we had a jail case, and frequently we had these cases, and we'd come in and the sheriff would say, what took you so long? And everyone would sort of say, we want to build a new jail. We just don't want to be blamed for it. So we'd, we'd like to blame you in the court. You would just enter into a court agreement and the court would sign it and they build a new jail. Prison Litigation Reform Act says you can't do that. A judge cannot sign off on an order unless he or she makes a finding of ongoing constitutional violations. 
Well, no lawyer is going to let their client, the county or the sheriff or the commissioners, what have you, agree their ongoing constitutional violation. So the PLRA, Prison Litigation Reform Act, says what we can do, what you can do is you can do this private settlement agreement. And it's a contract. It's, the judges are going to sign off on it, but it's public. I have it right here. And, and you can put anything you want in it. And if they don't comply, you can either go to state court and file a breach of contract action, which I did once in, in Vigo County, or you can bring a new lawsuit or you can restart the lawsuit. Um, so we have this private settlement agreement. And what generally happens with private settlement agreements is that the defendants or the county view that as, as binding, as they should, and use that to keep the lid on while the new jail is being built. In only one of the counties that I ever sued did we have a private settlement agreement that did not result in a new jail, I think. That was in Grant. Um, every, all the other counties that I, I mentioned, there are others, resulted in, in new jails. Um, if the private settlement agreement goes away, it goes away. And there's nothing left. What that means, of course, is at this point, I represent all the prisoners in the jail. Um, they are not going to be able to file a new lawsuit because we have this private settlement agreement in place. If it goes away, nothing will stop another lawsuit from being filed for an injunction, an order to stop what's going on, an order as we have in Allen County, where we have a judge saying the conditions here are unconstitutional. We, it's a binding order, and you're going you're gonna to fix it. So that's, that's the alternative. County Commissioner Lee Jones asked what the worst case scenario would be if a new lawsuit were to be filed. Folk responded. The worst that could happen is, as in Allen County, you are found to have an unconstitutional jail. You end up owing attorney's fees, even though I work for free, I, the ACLU gets paid for my time. Uh, the, the attorney's fees are capped under the Prison Litigation Reform Act, so it's not as much as it could be, but you have to pay attorney's fees. But probably more importantly, and, and defendants don't seem to consider this, if a court finds that the conditions in the jail are unconstitutional and have been, every person who's been in that jail for the last two years, because that's the limit statute limitations in Indiana, can sue you for damages for being confined in unconstitutional conditions. The advantage, the, the advantage to the private settlement agreement, of course, is there's no admission or finding of unconstitutionality. But if a court makes that finding, then, then that hurdle in a, in a lawsuit having to prove unconstitutional conditions has been removed. And, and, you know, and as I said, from a human condition, something bad is going to happen in that jail. Um, because number one, frequently something bad happened in the best of jails, and this is not the best of jails. And, and this has no reflection on the sheriff, who obviously is peddling as hard as he can, and his staff. But if you're dealing with an antiquated facility that has bad sightlines with unhappy people, something bad can happen. And you don't want that to happen. During public comment, Care Not Cages, Sydney Foreman, urged the committee to limit the current jail population. She also asked the committee to carefully consider where they choose to construct the new jail. I just wanted to let you all know we've been uh, distributing a petition around, um, which now has just under 70 signatures and counting. 
um, which asked the committee and the county officials and the city officials to take all the available steps uh, to decrease the existing jail population as so to relieve the pressures on the current jail and to further call upon the county to produce a full study of the cost of renovating the existing jail before proceeding with any new land purchase and construction plans. Um, and I would just like to echo the importance that whatever you do, I think you all know where I stand about the ideas of a new jail, um, but whatever is built, whatever is done, I think the location is severely important and it has to be located downtown, building a giant facility, 25 acres, large way out in the or and out in the county is just a horrible idea um and if you could like put yourself in those shoes and imagine what that would be like to have to like the shame of getting in a car and driving out to a, a campus where if you get on a public transportation and that's the stop that you pull everybody knows why you're going there everybody knows that you're in trouble everybody knows that there's this stigma around it um, but if you're taking the bus just to downtown, you can get off at any stop and find your way to the, wherever you need to go. And just remembering that everybody that goes there is a human, whether it's their job or because they have to go show up for an appointment or whatever it is, just remembering that any one of us could end up there. And what would one of these places, but where would you want to go? Where would you want it to be? You know, that's all. Thank you. Also during public comment, local resident Renee Miller advised the committee to listen to inmates when conducting the jail planning effort. We also haven't heard how we need to listen to the inmates. Um, for years, they have not been believed. If we had um, listened to inmates, we probably wouldn't be in the position we're in now. Um, it's obvious that there's been lots of, lots and lots of inmates trying to tell people that it's been inhumane and nobody listened, nobody cared, and they were left sitting, sleeping in that environment, and it's uncomfortable. Thank you. The CJRC will discuss more during their next meeting at 4.30 p.m. on March 6th. Now it's time for Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. We turn to Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is a special edition of Disabilitin. Tonight, we continue our series of the history of special education in the United States. When we last left off, we were in 1919 Antigua, Wisconsin, where the state Supreme Court had upheld the Antigua School District's decision to remove 13-year-old Merritt Beatty from the public school system due to his disability, a disability that would today be diagnosed as cerebral palsy. Upon further research, courtesy of the Antigua Supreme Court Law Library, we discovered the story inside the final years of Merritt's life. In a 1979 Ohio State Law Journal article published by Susan Smith Blakely, following the state Supreme Court's permitting his exclusion from the Anago public school system, Merritt's parents, quote, hired a private tutor for their son, but had to discontinue the lessons because of expenses, end quote. Despite the many doors to equal education being shut in his face, Merritt taught himself to read with the help of his family. He went on to have a prominent presence in his community of Antigo, 
from helping put up Christmas lights on Main Street to becoming a local advertising salesman with clients up to 150 miles from his home. He would often go so far as to walk 10 to 15 miles a day, hitchhike, and travel via bus. Finally, in 1966, the city of Antigua's Chamber of Commerce took a step that might be considered a type of reparations. They awarded Merritt a lifetime membership to the chamber, the first honor of its kind for any citizen of the city at that time. On May 13, 1989, Merritt Beatty died at the age of 84. This broadcast and the coverage are dedicated to his memory. We now turn ahead the clock once more, this time to 1930s Ohio. Incensed by the continued exclusion of their children from public schools, a group of local parents in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, established the Cuyahoga County Council for Disabled Children in 1933. Although this was one of the first organizations founded to advocate for such students, the gradual mobilization of parents against the exclusion of their children had been building for some time. Although this wasn't mentioned in the 1893 case Watson v. Cambridge we covered last time, according to Janice B. Fine's 1989 dissertation for Loyola University Chicago called Catalyst for Change, Parents of the Handicapped, 1930-1960, several states had established special education classes in the years before. These included New York in 1874, followed by Cleveland in 1875, with Rhode Island founding the first, quote, School for Backward Children, end quote, in 1896, three years after the Massachusetts-Watson case was decided. But there were challenges in these newfound solutions. First, there were often two sections of such classes, those for, quote, intellectually limited, end quote, and, quote, emotionally and behaviorally maladjusted, end quote. What's more, these classes were not only mixed together, but became, quote, disciplinary rooms, end quote, rather than effective learning environments. And in smaller towns, such as Merritt Beatty's home of Antigua, Wisconsin, such children could remain in public school classes as long as they didn't disturb the flow of instruction. Although there was a gradual expansion in special education classrooms, with such instruction becoming law in over 14 states by 1930, laws in other states and a diverse populace of disabled students made such progress difficult. Some states paid for classes, some didn't. Some provided training for teachers and some didn't. But if a child was deemed to be, quote, ineducable, end quote, they could still be excluded from public schools. We now return to Ohio. The same year as the founding of the Cuyahoga County Council for Disabled Children, cracks began to show in the walls built to keep out students with disabilities. From 1931 to 1933, the Cleveland City Heights School District operated what was known as a, quote, opportunity school, end quote, for students with a low IQ. However, in November 1932, with the school in full operation, the Cleveland City Board of Education adopted a resolution stipulating, quote, pupils now enrolled in the school having intelligence quotients below 50 will be retained in the organization until the end of the current school year. But beginning in September 1933, all pupils below a 50 IQ will be excluded, and the present group of pupils of this type will be segregated from all other school pupils at an early date, if such arrangements can be made without incurring any relatively large expense, end quote. One of those students impacted by this sudden shift, eight-year-old opportunity school student Bell Dean Goldman. 
Three months before the Cleveland Board of Education adopted the resolution excluding her, Belding was given an IQ test by Miss Wagner showing an IQ of 44, below what would soon become the 50 IQ threshold required for disabled students to remain in school. In November 1932, the same month as the resolution by the school board was passed, a Dr. Markey gave Belding a test with a result of 61. The next test was made by the Brush Foundation of Cleveland on May 8, 1933, and according to information given by the superintendent, although no representative of the foundation testified, the result was 47. On October 23, 1933, a Dr. Newcomb examined Belding for the final time and found her to have an IQ of 55. That sweltering September of 1933, Belding's parents Ben and Goldie were informed by the Cleveland School District that because Belding had tested below the IQ of 50 threshold, requiring her to remain in the Opportunity School, she would be removed prior to the upcoming school year. Ben Goldman, a lawyer, decided to take the matter to court and filed a suit against the board. In his argument, Ben cited that as Belding was between 6 and 18 years of age, the ages requiring students to be in school, according to another Ohio law, such expulsion was at odds with the exclusion resolution passed by the Cleveland Heights School District. On the other side, the school district argued, based on Belding's lack of progress in the two years prior, and their power to decide which IQ test could be accepted as grounds for exclusion, they were well within the right to remove Belding. Court documents further state that after the Board of Education of Cleveland Heights determined that this child was unable to profit substantially by further instruction, quote, the matter was submitted to the State Department of Education at Columbus, which department at first approved the removal of Belding, but then reversed itself and returned the matter back to the Cleveland Heights School Board. It was then that the parents of Belding filed suit in the Cuyahoga County Court of Appeals. In that decision, the county court said only the State Department, not local districts, could determine which students were uneducable, end quote. The district then appealed to the Ohio Court of Appeals, which ruled on April 4, 1935, that, quote, There is no doubt but that school boards in the exercise of their powers in these matters have a wide discretion, and that the courts will not interfere with that exercise of sound discretion in the absence of an abuse thereof, end quote. It appeared that the court was singing a familiar tune, as that of the Wisconsin and Massachusetts courts had done in the case of Beatty and Watson. But then, a sudden shift. The decision then read, quote, It is to be borne in mind, however, that not only compulsory attendance is required by our laws, but also that the right to attend our public schools belongs to the people. Education for all youth is deemed of paramount importance. It is the foundation of popular government and is considered so essential that between certain ages, children must attend our schools. We must then conclude that the Department of Education, as in the State Department of Education, may prescribe the standards and examinations and approve the agencies or individuals by which they shall be applied and conducted, but that under that section a determination of the question must be finally made by the Department of Education. In this case, the Department of Education made no final determination. Without such final approval or determination by the Department of Education, we think that this child was not excluded in accordance with the provisions of the statute, and that the court, meaning the common police court, was right in granting a writ of mandamus, end quote. That's legalese for when a court orders an individual or a group of people to do something, and in this case, reinstating Beldine Goldman. However, the court also said that, quote, 
As a matter of common sense, it is apparent that a moron of very low type or an idiot or imbecile who is incapable of absorbing knowledge or making progress in the schools ought to be excluded, end quote. Therefore, while it would seem that the Goldman family won, since the state board did not have a rule banning disabled children below a certain IQ, exclusion is technically still in place. But we could consider this court case to still be a victory for special education. Although Disabilitin was unable to find what happened to Belding Goldman, according to Doing Disability Justice, a book on disability advocacy written by the late Ohio Court of Appeals Judge Larry A. Jones, quote, Perhaps the Board of Education did adapt a rule. Otherwise, why would the parents of Belding Goldman have incorporated Cuyahoga Council for Disabled Children in 1935 and then have founded their own school? End quote. Next week, the trail of parental advocacy groups continues to expand, and groups of parents in states including Pennsylvania and Minnesota found organizations that would go on to change the face of special education forever. A Pupiro WFHB News, Live and Learn. Up next, we have Little Bub's Little Show, a co-production between WFHB and Little Bub's Big Fund. We turn now to that segment. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Mia is a beautiful, sweet lady who is all about affection. She primarily has short white fur with darker spots on her nose, chin, and tail. She loves to cuddle up and start her purr box on high. As soon as anyone stops by her kennel, she is up and seeking lots of pets. Mia is FELV positive and should either be the only cat or live with other F-E-L-V cats. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. FELV, or feline leukemia virus, is an infectious disease among cats. According to the Cornell Feline Health Center, FELV affects between 2 and 3% of all cats in the United States. The virus is shed in saliva, nasal secretions, urine, feces, and milk, of infected cats, bite wounds, mutual grooming, birth, nursing, and sharing litter boxes or feeding dishes can facilitate the spread 
from an infected cat. FELV is the most common cause of cancer in cats. It may cause various blood disorders and may cause a cat to be immunocompromised, putting them at risk for secondary infections caused by bacteria, viruses, and fungi. There is currently no definitive cure for FELV, though some therapies have been shown to decrease the amount of FELV in the bloodstream of affected cats. A relatively effective vaccine against FELV is available, though protection is not 100% guaranteed. The only sure way to protect cats from FELV is to prevent their exposure to FELV-infected cats. Keeping cats indoors and away from potentially infected cats is recommended. If outdoor access is allowed, provide supervision or a secure enclosure. All cats should be tested for FELV prior to introducing them into a home, and infection-free cats should be housed separately from infected cats. Although a diagnosis of FELV can be overwhelming, it is important to realize that cats with FELV can live normal lives for prolonged periods of time. Once a cat has been diagnosed with FELV, disease management involves carefully monitoring the cat's behavior and physical features. Any signs of abnormality should be addressed promptly with a veterinarian. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB. Produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org.